0: Let's uh, go before the Lord in prayer before we begin our message this morning. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you so much that we have an opportunity now to come to your word. God, I just pray and ask that you would work mightily and miraculously in this time. God, that you would encourage us, that you would bless us, that you would help us to not only be hearers of your word, but also doers of your word. God, I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts God, that we would not just understand it, but that we would also apply it. And God, we ask for your grace in doing so. We just pray and ask again a special blessing on this time. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of Galatians, and we're in the home stretch, so to speak. We're now we're we're in the latter part of the second half of chapter five. There's only six chapters in Galatians. Although the thing is, we have the fruit of the Spirit coming up, so it may actually slow down a little bit more. But we're in the home stretch as we look at Galatians and as we work our way through Galatians. But if you remember, the book of Galatians was written to a region. Galatia is a region, not a city. And in that region, there's many churches. And Paul had gone to Galatia. Paul had helped the Galatian churches get Formed and started and grow and now he's concerned about some false teaching that has crept in that they're adding to the gospel and that they're adding uh, elements of the Old Testament law to the gospel saying that if you really want to be obedient to God if you really want to grow in your relationship to God if you want to be saved even some were saying you need to follow the Old Testament law. You need to practice these certain things. Among those things, one of those things that rose to the top was this idea of circumcision. In other words, if you want to be a good Christian, you must first follow the Jewish law. You must do good. You must do what God has commanded in the law. And Paul has said again and again, the point of the law was never meant to justify. That the Old Testament law was never meant To make you a good person. In fact, it was to show you that you're not a good person. And you're in need of God's grace. One of the things that really gets under my skin is this idea that the God of the Old Testament is this mean God who demands so much of His people. And that the God of the New Testament is this God of grace who just loves His people. The God is the same God in the Old Testament as the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is a God of grace. It's a gracious thing that we have the law which points us to God's grace. And frankly, when we read the New Testament, we have a picture of Jesus which isn't just unicorns and butterflies. We have a picture of Jesus who is serious about sin and is coming back and is going to wage war on sin and unrighteousness. So we need to have a fuller, more complete picture of God. And that's what Paul is reiterating or showing to the Galatians throughout this book. So with that review in mind, let's look at our text this morning. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Looking at Galatians 5, verses 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if, you do, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of his word. Amen. You may be seated. So chapter 5, you may have noticed, begins a bit of a shift in the book of Galatians. That much of the first four chapters are really, it's the same sermon over and over and over again. And you may have noticed that as I've been preaching, that you've been thinking, isn't he just saying the same thing again and again and again? And there's an element of truth to that where Paul is reinforcing the same truth again and and again, and again, and I've been praying that you would see that, that you would understand that, that you would apply that, and I've been praying that I would get through to my thick skull as well, that I would remember the truth of the gospel, and hold fast to the truth of the gospel. So Paul has been preaching largely against legalism in the first four chapters, that you cannot please God by trying to live in light of the law. That no one is justified by the works of the law. That instead, the law shows us of our need for a Savior. That yes, the law stirs in us sin, and the law does hem us in, but it shows us how we need God's grace. And the law serves that purpose. Whereas Christ brings freedom. That salvation is by grace alone through alone alone now in chapter 5 we, we see the shift where Paul begins to say don't be a, he's been saying don't be a legalist and now he's saying however you need to understand that this freedom doesn't give you license to sin that yes you are free in Christ no you cannot keep the law that the law doesn't give you right standing before God that salvation is a gift of grace it's all about grace and it's only by His grace that you've been saved and that you even grow and persevere. But then he says, but you need to be serious about fighting sin. This doesn't give you a license to sin. As we talked A couple of weeks ago, Bill had had spoken to me about the message. And he he said, are you saying that we just wait for God's grace that I get up Sunday morning and I say, well, maybe God will be gracious to me today and carry me to Sunday school. No, that instead we've got to set our alarm. We've got to get up. We've got to go to church. We've got to get up in the morning. We've got to read the word that there is an element of human effort, but it's only by God's grace that we exert that effort. So just like Paul, who said, I worked harder than all of them, Yet not me, but the grace of God in me and with me, I did these things. So we also say the same things. We see this focus, this change within this letter, this shift in focus. So Paul begins to explain that freedom in Christ is not freedom to sin, but instead freedom from sin. In other words, we know that the gospel sets us free, but what exactly does that mean? What does freedom in Christ actually look like? Well, it's been said that the gospel sets us free from the penalty of sin. The gospel sets us free from the power of sin. And the gospel ultimately sets us free from the presence of sin. And that is what we will use as a framework for our message this morning. That the gospel sets us free from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and ultimately the presence of sin. And I want you to remember, as we think about where we've been these last couple of weeks in particular, as we've worked through the first part of chapter 5, that if you remember from last week, we talked about how the gospel of grace brings freedom, the gospel of grace bears fruit, and the gospel of grace begets unity. That where we have this freedom in Christ that we bear fruit in Christ, and that we're unified as a body in Christ. I want you to keep that in mind as we work through this text this morning as well, because some of these same themes, again, are reiterated again. Now, I want to stress that as we work through our sermon outline, that the first point, the Gospel sets us free from the penalty of sin, and the third point the gospel sets us free from the presence of sin, that these are often proclaimed from the pulpits of churches. And However, we would do well to not forget the second point. The gospel sets us free from the power of sin. That's where most of our focus is going to be today. In other words, what I'm saying is that there are many churches, and I think it's very easy for us as believers... To focus on the gospel sets us free from the penalty of sin. Now that Jesus has died, I get to go to heaven. I I don't have to pay for my sins. Jesus paid for them. And that one day in heaven, there'll be no more sin, no more suffering. It's going to be glorious and wonderful. And that's what Christ did on the cross. All that is true. But we miss that middle part that the gospel also sets us free from the power of sin. In other words, that there's a past work of Christ, the setting us free from the penalty, that there's the future work of Christ, that He's going to bring us home to heaven, but there's also the present work of Christ. He's delivering us, He's rescuing us from the power of sin here and now. As I mentioned, the last few messages in some sense haven't been that different because Paul has been reiterating the same same ideas again and again, but now he says, do not... Take your freedom as a license to sin. So without further delay, let's get into the first point of our sermon outline. Number one, we have been set free from the penalty of sin. We have been set free from the penalty of sin. Paul says in the beginning of verse 13, he says this, For you were called to freedom, brethren. The word called conveys the idea of being summoned. That all who are brothers and sisters in the Lord, that's what he means by brethren, All who are brothers and sisters have experienced the call of God upon their lives, and they have been freed from the penalty of sin. What is the penalty of sin? Well, Scripture tells us plainly that the the wages of sin is death. This is what Paul is referring to in Acts 13, when after preaching the gospel, he says this. He says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through Him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through Him everyone who believes is freed. Everyone who believes through Christ is freed from all things from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Moses didn't bring freedom. The law of Moses didn't bring freedom at all, but Christ did. And that's the heart of the Gospel message that we are slaves to sin, but freedom can be found in Christ. That's why Paul says, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. And he goes on and he says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. He says the law couldn't do that, but God did it. And God did it by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. Those of us who have kids understand this well, that the law doesn't change one's heart. You can say, no, Johnny, don't touch that. You can even force Johnny not to touch that. right? Don't touch that or else, and you constrain Johnny. And there's a sense where the law does that in our lives, but it doesn't change our heart. If anything, the law makes us want to to uh, to, to sin. That it wants that when we say "don't touch that," we want to touch it. As I mentioned, when the speed limit on Route 235 is 45 miles per hour, I want to drive 55. If it was 55, I'd want to drive 65. We just we want to push the law because the law was weak. And what the law could not do, God did in sending His own Son. Namely, He set us free from the penalty of sin. That's the Gospel, that every one of us is a sinner and has fallen short of the glory of God. But God in His grace sent His Son to take the punishment that we rightly deserved. He was raised on that third day, and that by trusting in Him, we can be forgiven. That's the Gospel So Paul presents this work, the work of Christ on the cross as done. As absolutely finished. That's why he says here in 5.13, you were called to freedom. This happened. You've been set free. It's why he started in verse 1 of chapter 5 and he said it was for freedom that Christ set us free. It's been done. You've been set free. He paid the penalty. And ultimately, God is the active agent, not man. That God has accomplished what He purposed to do, namely, setting the captives free. So freedom is not found in human effort. That's what Paul is saying. And this may sound like the first four chapters. It's really the same idea again. He's saying you're not set free by human effort, not by observing the law, but instead by Christ who died as a sin offering once and for all. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Hebrews 9 and 10. And uh, I won't read all of that, but if you read Hebrews 9 and 10, you have this beautiful picture of the old covenant and the law and the new covenant and how Christ uh, relates to the old. And in verses 9, uh, chapter 9 of Hebrews, he says the old covenant had regulations of divine worship and there were all these rules and these things that happened and the tabernacle was constructed in a certain way. And he says now in verse 6, now when these things had been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing divine worship, but into the second, this inner tabernacle, this inner room, he says, into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. That these sacrifices didn't make the worshiper perfect. Why? Because they relate only to food and drink and various washings. They're outer, they're outward things. There were regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation that they were meant to point forward to Christ, is what the author of Hebrews is saying. And then he says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. He entered into His body, He entered not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption." For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more will that cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living and true God? He says he goes on in the end of verse 9, it says, He didn't enter this temple made with human hands, He entered this holy place once and for all. And that we don't need to enter in year after year after year like the priest, for Christ has accomplished freedom once and for all. So having seen that we have been set free from the penalty of sin that really this is again a reiteration of the first four chapters. We've been set free from the penalty of sin. Now let's consider where our sermon really begins. Number two, we are being set free from the power of sin. So we have been set free and we are being set free from the power of sin. Paul continues on in verse 13 and he says this, Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, he says, You've been set free, yes, you were called to freedom, only do not turn that freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. It's not an opportunity for you to go on sinning. What does this look like? Well, it looks like someone who says, Well, I've been forgiven, so I'm going to do this. Paul says, Don't do that. This is not an opportunity for you to go, Well, God forgives. Therefore, I'm going to go on sinning. You see, the freedom that is found in Christ is not freedom to pursue sin, but freedom to no longer be enslaved by our sinful passions. It's freedom to live a life that is pleasing to God. You see, salvation produces change because those who are in Christ have been given a new heart. That's what we were talking about in Sunday school earlier. That when we're in Christ, it produces a change. That God gives us a new heart and it produces a new desire. A desire to live for God and for His glory. This, by the way, doesn't mean that it's always lived out perfectly. So this change is real. And this change is lasting. And that there is a desire in everyone who comes to Christ to live for God. But there's also this battle, this war that is waged within us. That's why Paul in Romans 7 speaks about this and he says, "We know that the law is spiritual, but the but the flesh, but, but I'm of the flesh and I'm sold into bondage and I'm I'm battling with this because I don't do the thing I want to do and I do the thing I don't want to do and I know that the, it's not it's not this that what I'm I'm not doing what I want to do but a sin that's dwelling in me." He says, But yet, in verse 22, says, I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man. He says, I'm battling. I'm at war with myself. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And then he says, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who will set me free, is what he's saying. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind, I'm serving the law of God. But on the other hand, my flesh. I'm serving with my flesh the law of sin. You see, there's there's a war that's now taking place within Paul, he says, as he battles the flesh. That is his sinful nature. And the sinful nature is still within us. It's still real and we battle against it. Day in and day out. But the fact that that, that we are saved indicates that there must be a battle. That if there's no battle, then we need to question our walk with the Lord. We need to question where we are with the Lord. Paul says, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, for in Him victory is found. I have many favorite verses. Another one of my favorite verses is Ezekiel 36, 26-27. This section where he says, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to take out this hard, stony heart and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. One that is actually soft and caring and is new and is alive. I'm going to take that which is dead out of you and I'm going to put something new and alive in you. And He says, I will put My Spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in My statutes and you will be careful to observe My ordinances. That is the fruit of the Gospel. That when you get saved, there is a change that happens within you. That the Spirit causes you to walk in His statutes and you are careful to observe all that He has commanded. So to the one who says, Christ died for my sin, I'm going to go and do whatever I want to do, and I'm going to enjoy it. say, is the Spirit within you? Has He given you a heart of flesh? Is He causing you to walk in His statutes? Don't hear me say that we do this perfectly. Again, just like Paul, it's a war. But I'll tell you, at the age of 19, God drastically changed my life. Because all I wanted to do was continue on the path that I was on. I thought thought the path that I was on was wonderful. But he not only picked me up and turned me around, but he gave me a new desire. So that when I return to those things, and I do, because sometimes I was walking this way, and now I'm walking this way, but sometimes my head's like this, right? And I want to go back there. And sometimes I step backwards, and I start walking back there. But you know what? My heart's not in it. He's given me a new desire. And they say, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Like Paul said. And God says, Jesus will. Jesus will deliver you. It's the same message that we see in Romans 6. We don't need to look there, but read through Romans 6, 1-18 this week. Right, what are we going to do? Continue in sin so that grace may increase? God forbid. May it never be. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin you became obedient. How? From the heart, he says in verse 17. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you now are slaves to righteousness. So continuing on in our text, in verse 13, he says, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity from the flesh. Freedom is not a license to sin. We just looked at that. But, through love, serve one another. So don't, don't, Think of your freedom as an opportunity to serve yourself, to fulfill your earthly pleasures, but instead see your freedom as an opportunity to love and serve one another. That freedom in Christ is freedom that is lived out in love. And he says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This echoes Jesus' statement in Matthew 22. When asked, they asked him, They said, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, "He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the greatest commandment. And the, the, this is the first and greatest commandment, he said. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You want to keep all the Old Testament law? Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor like you love yourself. By the way, this is not a call to love yourself. There are some who actually think that this is a call for us to love ourselves deeply and care for ourselves. That's not the call of this text. The point is, you already love yourself. You are in love with yourself already. And you are called to love your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus taught clearly who our neighbor is. That our neighbor, those, is, is those around us, that we're called to love the people around us as much as we love ourselves. This is hard, folks. This is really hard to live out. You see, love for others is evidence of one's love for God why Jesus said in John 13, 34-35, He said, a new commandment I give to you. And we're going to look at this on Maundy Thursday. We look at this every year on Maundy Thursday. This new commandment. But the word new really conveys the idea of fresh. A fresh perspective. Because it's not a new commandment. On this commandment, depends all the law and the prophets. It's not new at all. It was taught in the Old Testament. Love your neighbor. He says, I give you a new commandment, a fresh idea, a fresh perspective on this commandment, that you love one another. How? even as I have loved you, so that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, you need to love one another. How? Like I love you, even as I have loved you. So there's this pattern for how we ought to love one another. But it's not just a pattern. It's also the power to do so. It's the power to love one another that we see in this verse. You see, Christ's love for us gives us a new perspective on what love is and a new ability because he gives us a new heart that there's power in receiving Christ's love and that that power enables us to love others. 1 John 4, he says, We love because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Those are pretty strong words. If someone says, I love God and he hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God. He cannot. This is pretty strong language. He cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see, the opposite is also true though. That if you love God, you will love your brother. When you understand the love of God, you can't help but love your brother. It's like forgiveness. That when you've been forgiven, you can't help but forgive. So the one who says, I cannot forgive that. I have to say, do you understand what Christ died for? Do you understand the depth of your own sin? Do you understand forgiveness in Christ if you say you can't forgive someone else? In the same way, do you understand the love of God if you don't love others? So having seen that we have been freed from the penalty of sin, and now we see that we, have, we are being freed from the power of sin, that God gives us this ability to love Him and love others by giving us a new heart. Now let's consider thirdly, that we will be set free from the presence of sin. So we have been set free, we are being set free, and we will be set free from the presence of sin. When I say this, the implication is that this is yet to happen. We are not yet set free from the presence of sin. Sin is very real. It's a very real battle in our lives. And we have to deal with the presence, the reality of remaining sin in our lives. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans 7. He says, "I don't I, these things I do, I don't want to do, and I'm battling against it. There's this war. Because there's remaining sin within me. But the Gospel promises us that we will be delivered. We will be set free. One day from the presence of sin. Isaiah 35 says, there's a a highway will be there. This is speaking of heaven. It's a picture of heaven. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it'll be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it. But, verse 9, he says, But the redeemed will walk there. There will be no sin in that place. And as we discussed in Sunday school, Philippians 1:6 promises us that. Paul says, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You're going to grow in holiness until you are perfected in holiness in heaven. There will be no more sin. So we have this idea that we will be set free from the presence of sin. But look at verse 15 of our text. Paul says, But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed. By one another. In other words, if you're gonna start biting at each other, nipping at each other, and you're gonna devour one another, you know what the you know what's gonna happen next? You're gonna consume one another. The picture here is of eating. It's like it's like me when I have when I, I can't take a bite of a Twinkie, right? You just you I, I bite it and then I devour it, and then it's, I've consumed the whole thing. He says, this is what's gonna happen. You, you can't just pick at one another because you're gonna consume one another. I think what Paul is ultimately saying here is that the way of the Christian is not biting. The way of the Christian is not biting because that leads to devouring and you're just going to destroy one another. And he says, and if that's your practice, his point is this, be warned. If your practice is nipping at others, you're on the path that leads not to eternal life, but instead to the path of destruction. So don't hear me say that the way to gain eternal life is by loving each other. That's not at all what I'm saying. Or that the way to gain eternal life is by not biting each other. What I'm saying is that when you have been given the gift of God's grace, when you have been saved, you don't want to bite each other anymore. That you have a new desire, a new heart. The power of God is evident in you. That's why 1 John 4 says if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Those are hard words, as I mentioned, when we think about what love is. Read 1 Corinthians. We learn what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Plug that into 1 John 4. You have some conviction. If someone says, I love God, and he is not patient with his brother, he's a liar. If someone says, I love God, and he is not kind to his brother, he's a liar. If someone says, I love God, and he envies his brother, or he boasts... Or he acts unbecomingly toward his brother, he's a liar. So there's a very clear warning here. He says, Be careful. Don't bite one another and devour one another, because if you do, you're going to be consumed by one another. And his point is, you need to test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. The same thing he says in 2 Corinthians 13 test yourselves to see if you are in the faith, examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test, unless He's not. Examine yourself. You see, outward conformity does not bring about salvation. One cannot simply say, I am committed to pleasing God. I will keep His law. And I am committed to loving my brother. And from this day forward, I will love him like I love myself. If you get that message... If the message you get today is, I need to love God and I need to love my brother and I need to try harder at doing this. And if I do, if I do well enough, God's going to look on me with favor and He's going to save me. If that's the message you get, then you've gotten my message all wrong. You've gotten Paul's message all wrong. Instead, you see yourself as a wretched sinner in need of a Savior. You cast yourself upon God, you throw yourself on His grace and His mercy. And when, he does, when you do that, you can't help but say, I love God, and I want to serve Him. And therefore, I love my brother, and I want to serve Him. Interchange produces fruit. That the Gospel, when it changes us, when, when we're saved, it changes us and produces fruit because we're given a new heart and we're changed by God's grace. And the natural result of that is love for God and love for others. So by way of review, we've talked about how we the Gospel of Grace does these things for us. That we've been set free from the penalty of sin. And that we will be set free from the presence of sin. So we, we have been set free. We will be set free. But that second point, that we are being set free, is the evidence of the reality of one and three. So being set free from the power of sin is evidence of the reality that we have been saved. It's evidence of the reality that we will be saved. So it's not that we lose our salvation. It's instead that God has purpose to finish what He starts. And if we're not growing, if we're not being set free from the power of sin, not that we are perfect or holy, but that there's a battle in us and the battle's real, then we need to say, have I been set free from the penalty of sin? Am I going to be rescued in the last day? Because the work of God is not just what He has done and what He will do, but what He is doing through the power of the Gospel. We have been set free, we are being set free, and we will be set free. Please, please understand that the Gospel is not just about God saving us, in the past, or God saving us in the future, but the Gospel has very real implications for today. That we grow in holiness as we reflect on His goodness and His grace. And that works itself out in love for God and love for others. So the question is this. So, as we think on this, how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically apply all this to our lives, how do we take... This idea that the Gospel sets us free, that God in His grace has set us free from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and will one day set us free from the presence of sin. How do we take that and live that out here and now? Well, we need to rest in the fact that in Christ, He is indeed setting us free from the power of sin. That in Christ, He is doing that day in and day out. That if we are in Christ, we should see that in our Lives. Sometimes the victory is hard. But He's the one who gives the victory. So we get up and we continue to fight. Scripture says things like persevere. Don't give up. Continue in the faith. And then says God will keep you in the faith. It's a beautiful picture. right? You need to do this. And God's going to do it for you. That you need to get up and God in His grace is going to meet you and He's going to carry you and He's going to be gracious towards you in that. We need to remember that He has set us free from the penalty of sin and He's going to set us free from the presence of sin, but in the meantime, He is setting us free from the power of sin. Therefore, we need to run to His grace day by day, throw ourselves on the mercy of God, and then examine ourselves to see if we are indeed in the faith. Are we being set free from the power of sin? Is it manifesting itself in love for God and in love for others? Are we taking seriously Jesus' word? That if you love God, you will love others. And if you say you love God and you don't love others, then you're a liar. Is the gospel of God producing change in us, both individually and corporately? And that's the thing we really need to ask as we think about this text. Not just as individuals, but as a body. Do we see the love of God? Do we see love for each other growing deeper and deeper and deeper? Is it producing change? Is the grace of God producing such change in us that we can say, yes, I can see where Bill has grown over the last year. Yes, I can see where Mark has grown over the last year. Yes, I can see where Dan has grown over the last year. Can we say those things? And can we say, yes, I can see how we're loving each other more and more and more because the grace of God manifests itself in love for Him and love for one another. As we close, I want you to think on how very appropriate this is to Paul who's writing to the Galatian churches whom he's talked about unity and discipline and these false teachers. And he's saying, you need to cast these false teachers out. Don't have any part in this false gospel. But you who believe in the gospel, you need to be unified in this. You need to cling to this and hold tight to this. And then he says, so don't bite and devour one another. Because you're going to destroy each other. Instead, Live in light of God's grace. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. God, I just pray and ask that You'd be with us. I thank You for the power of the Gospel in our lives. God, we are wholly inadequate. We are unable to, in and of ourselves, live in such a way that we can fulfill the law, any part of the law, let alone the summary of the law, to love you more than anything and to love our neighbor as ourself. God, we know that that will only come about by you working in us and through us. God, help us to not put the cart before the horse. Help us to understand our need, our need for grace, our need to run to your Son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and as our Savior. And God, I pray that as we do so, we will remember that You will carry us through to completion. God, help us to run, to run with perseverance the race that is set before us, knowing that You will indeed carry us through. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.